Well, if you'll turn with me to First Thessalonians chapter 5. Continue on here. Um, as we kind of introduce this passage, this section of First Thessalonians last week, uh, we saw that the focus um, shifts. Uh, and, and rather than the comfort that we receive from the knowledge and the absolute certainty of Jesus' return, uh, and all that's associated with that, we we see a focus from Paul about how we should live while in his absence, up until his return. Um, and last week, uh, there was an exhortation to pay attention to the example of the leaders, to, to the those that God has entrusted with the steward and shepherding of the church, um, and to take that example and to put it into practice in our own life. And that was uh, just one one thing that we should be doing, understanding that God has uh, established the leadership of the church and all of those things. We trust that he has called people, uh, that he has given the standards, and that as a result of that, there is a godly example to be followed. Uh, today, Paul kind of continues the exhortation uh, to live as true disciples, and we're going to continue through part of that today. Uh, I was hopeful that we would get through the rest of this chapter, but I don't think we will. Um, the focus of the remainder of this section is far more personal. It's it's not a discussion about looking at somebody and doing something. It's it's a discussion about where is my heart? What am I doing? And so um, most of what remains, not all of it, but most of what remains in this chapter, in the in the last section here in First Thessalonians, can be placed in in really four general categories. And we're gonna look at a couple of these categories this morning, but I'll tell you what they are. Uh, first, it's our responsibility toward other Christians. Paul gives some instruction about what our responsibility towards one another is. Second, uh, what is the focus of our faith? An examination of what is our focus. And and we'll get that far this morning. But looking forward to next week, we have what is our response to the Holy Spirit's action in our lives. Paul talks about that and what we should do and what we shouldn't. Well, what we shouldn't do in response to that. And we'll take time and look at what we should do as well. And then we, he kind of closes this uh, section talking about the foundations of the Word of God and how it is the core and that upon which we would build our understanding. So as we look forward to next week, those are the two items that we'll cover next week. Uh, but this morning, our personal responsibility towards others. So let's begin there. Uh, turn with me to First Thessalonians chapter 5. If you haven't, let's read verses 14 and 15. He says, now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men, see that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Now, in this, uh, you'll see that there are those that we are supposed to um, warn uh, first, and so there's several sections, several things listed in that that give us a responsibility within the body of Christ, how we would interact with each other. Now, we can generally sum this up as we read in uh, Hebrews that we aren't to forsake the, the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but that we would uh, come together, that we would exercise fellowship with the intent that we would provoke each other to love and to good works, to mimicking of Christ in all facets of our life, in other words, to, to really summarize what he's getting at there. Now, this is the same principles 
that's an overarching summary, but this looks in some uh, more specific. He says for you, for you and I, first off, to warn those who are unruly. Now, those who are unruly simply means that they are living out of line with Jesus. So the action of those who are to be warned, right, that's what they're doing. Now, you and I may understand that there's, it may not be every single thing in their life is out of line. There may be particular areas where they're having struggles, where uh, something needs to be brought into subjection to the mind of Christ. That's very possible. Probably, if we're all honest, we all have some area where we understand that God is working in us, and that uh, even those that we might fellowship with, that we might enjoy communion uh, within our church together with, would be interacting or a source of encouragement in those particular areas. But we are to warn them, we are to admonish them. Uh, so he, he urges in the strongest terms, Paul urges in the strongest terms, and with as much sincerity and with as much passion as possible. And that's what uh, he, he says there, uh, we beseech you. That's what beseeching means. It's almost a pleading, almost a begging uh, to, to the extent that this is how we would conduct ourselves, to try to stir the Thessalonians and ultimately to you and I to be stirred up that we might live in a way that uh, that is active in these regards. And within the Word of God, it's clear that the fellowship of the church has a certain level of relational intimacy, that, that there's a knowing of one another and an interaction with one another and an obligation and a responsibility toward one another. And that is designed by God for the purpose of establishing and encouraging and building one another up and having a unified front, as it were, to the world that is around us. It's part of the witness of the church. And so these, these five points that we read in these verses, 14 and 50, 15, sort of serve as a uh, basis or at least a a certain level of understanding of how we would conduct ourselves in respect to one another. And first of those is to admonish those who are unruly. Those who are living outside of the bounds of what God's Word has prescribed for life. And we're not talking about areas that are simply questions of liberty, right? Whether you know, We're not talking about those kinds of issues. We're talking about things that are clear and cut. Clear cut. These are definitely sinful or definitely godly actions that we would engage in or that we would not engage in or positions or stances that we would take that are contrary to the word of god unruly things that are outside of the scope excuse me not outside of the scope that are outside of what god has ruled as it were and we, we look in uh different places and we see that there is this idea uh that we are to be watchful Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 33, and, and we're going to make some application here. In Ezekiel, there's this, there are several times where, um, as Ezekiel is prophesying, and, and we have recorded what is happening, what he is seeing, the visions that he receives, uh, that people are, are, there's this discussion of being a watchman. Now, a watchman is simply somebody who is paying attention to uh, what is going on outside of the city walls, and so that as the enemy comes, they might notice them. 
and give advance warning so that preparations can be made so that people might come to arms and they can defend themselves, all of that. But we understand what a watchman is. In Ezekiel 33, verses 3 through 6, If when he, speaking of the watchman, and we, we derive that from verse 2, if when he sees the sword come upon the land, he blows the trumpet and warn the people, then whoever heareth the sound of the trumpet and taketh not warning, yet the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. Right, so you have the decision to respond to what the watchman says or to not respond to it. If the watchman's up there, he sees the enemy coming, he blows the trumpet, he makes the noise, everybody and warns everyone, and you choose to do nothing... That's your responsibility. He did his job. He did it well. You have no excuse for being unprepared. That's your responsibility. In verse 5, he continues, He heard the trumpet sound, uh, sound of the trumpet and took not the warning. His blood shall be upon him, but he that taketh warning shall deliver his soul. Verse 6, but if the watchmen see the sword come and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned, if the sword come and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. So the watchman may have fallen asleep, he may have been negligent in his job, whatever the reason may be, he doesn't raise the alarm, and there is loss of life, there are consequences to everyone that he should have been watching on their behalf. And this, in some respects, is a picture of the fellowship that we enjoy with, within the church, this idea of admonishing, warning each other that there is trouble as a result of the way we're conducting ourselves. Because we're in fellowship, because we are uh, within the family of God, sharing the same name, as it were, as the people of God. And there, because as a result of that relationship, there is some responsibility toward one another, when we see somebody struggling, when we see somebody being unruly, living outside of line with Christ, we're a watchman. And we can raise the alarm, we can have a, a, a loving discussion with that person about where they're standing, what they're doing, uh, what the Word of God says about it, and they can respond to it or they can choose not to respond to it. That's their prerogative. At that point, it's their responsibility. However, if we are a watchman, if we are engaged in fellowship with people and then we don't engage with them, we don't confront them, we don't have a discussion when there's unruliness, when they're out of line with Christ, we bear some responsibility in that. In Colossians chapter 1, we read this verse last week, but in Colossians chapter 1, uh, part of the responsibility of the leadership of the church is to uh, admonish, to warn those, uh, call them to account for the things that they're doing. But we also see that in that same idea is the, the idea that we would mimic that, that you and I would engage in that. Colossians 1.28 says, uh, Whom we preach, speaking of Jesus Christ, every man, and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may, uh, that we may present every man perfect in God. Warning, excuse me, whom we preach, warning every man. In other words, there, there is a standard and, a, and a established in Christ that we would seek to uphold, that we would seek to mimic, that we would seek to reflect to the world around us. 
In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, we remember that as we studied through Galatians not very long ago, that we, when, when we see our brother who is caught, overtaken in sin, in a fault, they're stuck there. They may not realize it, or it may be a conscious decision on their part. Either way, we engage with them. We confront them about it. We bear that burden with them. So there is this responsibility towards others within the church that Paul is talking about. Thessalonians, I want you to warn those, admonish those who are unruly, take the word of God and bring it to bear upon their life. And we do so in a loving way. We do so not accusing. accusing. We, we do so in a way that is reflective of how Christ would do. Letting our words be seasoned with grace, letting it be motivated by uh, sincerity and actual concern for the people that we love and that we fellowship with. But the fact is, is that we do it, whether we're good at it, whether we're comfortable with it or not, that we would engage in it at a level where that is part of what we do. So towards one another, he says, he exhorts them, he beseeches them to first warn those who are unruly. Second, he says for you and I, Comfort the feeble-minded. Comfort the feeble-minded. Now, feeble-minded simply means faint-hearted, right? There are those who are on the verge of giving up. And I don't know how else to express that. It's probably not 100% accurate, but we understand and we can identify with that today that there are moments in our life where we are overwhelmed. Turn with me, if you will, for just a moment to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. Now, uh, Numbers is here recording something for us. We remember that the nation of Israel has come to uh, the Jordan River, and they're about to come into the Promised Land, and so they send in 12 spies, right? one from every tribe. And as they go in, there's two men among them named Joshua and Caleb. And they go in, and they spy out the land. They spend a great amount of time there. They bring back in some of the fruit of the land, and they begin to report what they've seen. And ten of the spies are like this. They are faint-hearted because what they've seen there, there's no way in their mind that it can be overcome. There are giants in the land. There are walled cities. There are things that we will never be able to overcome to go in and possess this land. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. We'll be destroyed. We'll be wiped out. Woe is us because here is God. He's brought us out into the desert to kill us. They're faint-hearted. They're on the verge of giving up. But in Numbers chapter 14, verses 6 through 8, we have the example of the opposite in Joshua and Caleb, these two who bring back a faithful report. Everyone agreed that the land is indeed flowing with milk and honey, that it is as good as God promised it to be. Numbers 14, 6. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were with them that searched the land, rent their clothes. When they see the feeble-mindedness, the faint-heartedness of the rest of these spies, and they begin to see the rest of the nation of Israel listen to them, they are overwhelmed with grief and they rent their clothes. And the reason they're overwhelmed with grief they is given to us, and we see this in the next few verses. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceedingly good land. It is everything that God promised it to be. Everything that even the rest of these ten faint-hearted men agree that it is. 
If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us a land which floweth milk and honey. Only rebel not against the Lord, neither fear ye the land, people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. Right Here they are rejoicing and saying, no, listen, don't trust the Lord. They are encouraging the congregation. They are comforting them with the truth of God's word that this is in fact what God has promised. Not only that, but as we read in Romans chapter 8, if God is with us, who can be against us? It doesn't matter if there are walled cities. Remember Jericho, what happened? Here's a massive walled city. And how did the walls come down? It wasn't by force or might or military strategy. It made absolutely zero sense. March around it for seven days. And on the seventh day, march around it seven times and then blow the trumpets and the walls fell down. If God is for us, who can be against us? Here's a nation of Israel on the on the precipice of entering into the land that God had promised them, and they're faint-hearted, they're feeble-minded. And what do Joshua and Caleb do, those who are strong in the faith? They encourage them with the truth of God's Word. They remind them of who God is and His faithfulness. See all that He's done for us in delivering us from the hand of the, the, hand of the Egyptians, how He watched over and He took care of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how all the way back through history, all the way to the very creation and the fall of mankind where God began to provide for the needs of man's redemption. That Adam and Eve, who would sin against and rebel against God, who would be immediately provided for with temporary coverings, with the shedding of blood, and promised even further deliverance, complete and whole redemption through faith in this Messiah that was promised. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses uh, 14 through 18. Here, Paul is telling the nation, uh, excuse me, the people of Thessalonica, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Remember that this was their error, that they believed for whatever reason that those who had died may not make it. Because they thought they had the false understanding that everyone would live until the return of Christ. Yet here are people dying, and Paul comforts them. No, 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 you've misunderstood. And he comforts them with the word of God. For this we say in verse 15 unto you, though by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain in the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. And he says, comfort them with this. Comfort them with the truth. Give them what they need to understand. In Joshua chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, remember that here is Joshua and, and he's now just become the leader of the nation of Israel. And in the first chapter of that book, and I'm going to probably get it wrong because it's a memory verse from way back, and, but we remember that he tells us to, to be strong, to be very courageous. In other words, don't fear. Why? Because you're going to take the Word of God and you're going to remember what God has said. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. Right? It's going to stick with you. The truth of what God has said, what He has promised, who He is, what He's revealed to us, all of those things are, the, are what is, are establishing our comfort and, our, and, and reaffirming our faith. I alluded to it earlier, referenced it just a moment ago, but in Romans chapter 8, as we look at those very, those familiar words, 
we realize that as we have opportunity to deal with those who are faint-hearted, those who are on the verge of giving up. Now, when I say giving up, I'm not talking about losing of salvation or anything like that, but just a, a, a being overcome by the circumstances of life, whatever it may be, for whatever reason, not trusting the faithfulness of God and being overcome by those things. Uh, Noah pa knew a pastor in Wyoming, and he had a young daughter, and I don't remember all of the circumstances, but I think she was very ill. And they began to pray because of the doctrinal positions that they held. Uh, they weren't going to go to doctors and those kinds of things, and they just trusted. They began to pray, and, and this young girl died. And it was distressing to his faith. And the thing that brought him back and, and pulled he and his wife out of it was this understanding and, and this going back to the Word of God and those who would come in and speak truth. Not, not these weird theological things, not these weird doctrinal positions that they'd held, but actually the truth of God's Word. And we need to understand some of those same truths. When we are on the verge of giving up, we need to take the time to, to engage with one another, to be those who would speak that truth into that darkness, into that place of feeble-mindedness, of faint-heartedness, to bear that burden with them. But not only that, but to ourselves, take the initiative that we would take up the Word of God on our own and use it. That we would operate in faith uh, and, and understand that this is what God has said. And the reality for you and I, as we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, who, who shall, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Right, though everything may be crashing down, though everything may be falling and going sideways, it does not matter because God is for us. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us, how shall we not with him also freely give us all things? If God would give even his own son, why would we, why would we expect him to withhold something from us that is needed? Why would we expect him to have forsaken us, even though he promised in his word to never leave us or never forsake us? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. And he continues on, if we jump into verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of God? Right? And he, and he explains that, no, nothing, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, nothing will separate us from the love of God. In all these things, he says in verse 37, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. I'm persuaded. In other words, I am absolutely convinced, and this is where we come from as we encourage those who are faint-hearted, who are on the verge of giving up. We are, con we are absolutely convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to come, nor things present, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have this absolute assurance and surety that God himself is on our side. That nothing will separate us from him. That he has given us everything that is necessary for life and godliness in the, in the knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ. We take the opportunity to speak this truth into, God, into people's lives to encourage them to not give up, but to hope and to continue with expectation of good in all that God has promised.
That's what the book of Hebrews chapter 12, excuse me, 11 is all about. That here is the faithfulness of God over and over and over, example after example. Therefore, it says, let us put aside the sin that did so easily beset us and let us run the race that is put before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, but is now set down at the right hand of God. And you know what? It also goes on and it says, listen, it says, lift up your hands later in that chapter 12. Lift up your hands, you who are weak and you who are feeble. In other words, it's saying be encouraged by the faithfulness of God, by what he has done, by the fact that he would engage with us enough that he would treat us as his sons and rebuke us if necessary. That he loves us so much that he wouldn't leave us where we were, that he provided by his only son, Jesus Christ, that he is in the midst of sanctifying you and I even now. And as we're going to find, we have even more to be thankful for as we look forward to and we see this sanctification process. And we understand that our God is the very God of redemption. So we encourage one another. Those who are feeble-minded, we would take the opportunity to engage with them, right? We have this sacred responsibility of fellowship within the church. And first, we're going to admonish those, we're going to warn those who are walking unruly, who are misrepresenting Christ, who are not walking in accordance with what he has said. And secondly, we're going to encourage, we're going to comfort the feeble-minded, those who are faint-hearted and at the point of giving up. He goes on and he tells us this, <clears throat> that we are to support the weak. Now, it's not talking about those who are ill or, or those who are sick. He's talking about those who are weak in faith. And I realize that there's a fine line between uh, feeble-mindedness feeble or, or being faint-hearted and those who are weak in faith. I think there's a distinction, right? That probably those who are weak, who are faint-hearted are coming from a point of weakness in their faith. Now, that's an assumption on my part, because you and I could be hit at any moment with any kind of circumstance that would bring us to a point of weakness. It absolutely challenges our faith. I think of the man, the father, in Mark chapter 9, where here he is, he's brought his son who is possessed by this evil spirit, and he throws him down regularly, and he has sort of these epileptic-type uh, uh, symptoms, and he's been thrown into the fire, and he's been thrown into the water, being trying to be killed by this evil spirit. And so this man brings him uh, to Jesus' disciples. And as Jesus uh, interacts with this man, uh, he uses it as an opportunity to instruct him about faith. In Mark chapter 9, if you want to turn there with me, Mark chapter 9, verse 24, as Jesus interacts with him and he's talking with him and he says, oh, ye of little faith, he, he addresses this from a position of faith. And here is the man who, who this father, and, you, and he's obviously been dealing with this since the boy was a child because Jesus asked him, how long has this been going on? He says, well, since he was just a kid, since he was a child. Since, and, and so this is the existence that he's had. And this father has endured and, and put up with and protected and watched over this boy who this evil spirit is trying to kill on a regular basis and saved him all. The, I mean, we don't know exactly how old this boy is. He could, be, he could be 10 years old, and this dad's been doing this for 10 years. 
We don't know, but he here he is engaged in it. And he's weak. He's weary in all the, the doing of what's being done. And Jesus tells him in verse 24, if thou can, excuse me, verse 23, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believe it. And the Father straightway says in verse 24, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Or we could be encountered any moment, any one of us, with something that would challenge our faith. That would, that would bring us to a standstill where, where we are forced to deal with something that we may not have realized was an issue. That we have a, an area of, of weakness in our faith that, that was unrevealed to us. And we stand before Christ being confronted with these very kinds of things. And we can't see how anything could change. Like the nation of Israel, it's an impossibility that we might take over this land that God has promised us. Whatever the circumstance may be, no matter what is happening, how outside of our control it may be, it doesn't matter. We find ourselves believing in Jesus, but in need of support in our faith, of a building up, of a shoring up. And so here we are told by Paul the Thessalonian church is told to support one another, to hold each other up in faith. To help us realize and to see that, yeah, I understand that this is an overwhelming circumstance. This is something that we would throw our hands up and woe is me. But nonetheless, here it is. We understand that God is faithful. We know because God has told us that this is how we should act. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, we're told that we are to bear these burdens, those who are stuck in sin, those who are overcome by it, and that may be a result of where this is coming from, but by way of application, it says, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ, right? Here we are, bearing the burden, supporting up and holding up this brother who is weaker in the faith, that we would help establish them that we would pray, that we would come alongside, that we would instruct from the Word of God to a point that their faith is rejuvenated. In Romans chapter 14, on the other side of this same coin, as we look to encourage and to shore up people who are weak in the faith, and not only by those who are uh, faced with circumstances, those who are uh, overwhelmed by life, but to understand that there is a position that there may be some further development in that person's life. In Romans chapter 14, verses 13 through 15, Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteems anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom the Lord, for whom Christ died. So here's Paul, and he's talking about uh, this, the, this meat that's been sacrificed to idols, and there's, there's a lot of, of things happening there. But for some people, it's a stumbling block. You, they understand that this meat's been sacrificed to idols. It's part of pagan worship. And so therefore, by eating it, I'm somehow participating in it, which, which isn't the case. And Paul addresses that. He says, I know, and I'm persuaded, I'm fully convinced by the Lord Jesus that nothing in and of itself is unclean. 
So there, so Paul is saying, listen, you can eat that meat if you want to. But here's the thing. You have to understand that there, is a, there are those who are weaker in the faith. And we need to be careful that we're not stumbling them, that we would support their faith. And that we would be watchful about how we would engage, how we would use our liberty. Some of the only provisions that we find upon our liberty in Christ is, is and this is one of them, that we wouldn't stumble anyone. That we wouldn't cause anybody to doubt their faith, that we wouldn't cause anybody to uh, violate their conscience. Now, there may be opportunity to shore their faith up in a different way by bringing them to the Word of God and showing them the actual liberty that they may have in a particular area. Here's what God's Word actually says. We may have that opportunity, but in the meantime, we're not going to cause them to stumble. We establish these foundations of truth within ourselves, and hopefully we have the opportunity to establish them within others. They become that critical shoring that would support somebody's faith in times of trial. Not only that, but they become an opportunity for us to exhibit love, Christ-likeness, to those that we fellowship with by holding back, as it were, what we feel like I might actually have permission to do. In preference of those who may have a different opinion. So we are to support the weak, hold them up, establish, help to confirm their faith. We're also told to be patient. He tells us to be patient toward all men. Patience literally simp simply means that we would persevere for the long haul. That's, I mean, that's, that's what it means. And patience takes different forms, doesn't it? It may take the form of uh, tolerance, for lack of a better term, of putting up with, of long-suffering. It may take the form of, uh, of, I'm in this for the long haul. I'm going to support you in faith. I'm going to be engaged with you for the long haul. And that's a patient, it's not a, a negative interpretation of patience in any way, shape, or form, but it's a positive outlet of it, that I would dedicate myself for the long term to be engaged with somebody in the establishment of their faith. It becomes an example of discipleship as we engage in patient continuance in the things of God. That I wouldn't be weary in well-doing as we read in Scripture. That I would continue in those things that Christ has called me to. That's patience. Continual engagement of everything that we've just talked about so far, that we would continually be engaged in exhorting, excuse me, in admonishing, in warning those who are walking unruly, that we would be those who would patiently and continually, with perseverance, comfort those who are faint-hearted, that we would engage with and seek to establish, and, and not only that, but to deal in patience and long-suffering, and that I would withhold myself continually from something that I can do in preference of somebody else. In Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, verses uh, 1 through 3, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, 
I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. So, the, so what Paul is pleading with the Ephesians to do, and with you and I, and it takes patience to do this, is that we would walk worthy, that we would be conducting ourselves in a way that is worthy of the discipleship, of the, uh, of the sonship, as it were, that we were called to in Jesus Christ. With all lowliness and meekness, humbleness and, and restraint, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. You know, synonyms of patience are long-suffering, forbearing. And, and they're, they're not the same thing. Long-suffering means just what it sounds like. It means that I'm going to suffer long through something. Now, suffering may be overstated in some instances. Like if I have to just restrain myself from not doing something around somebody because it, it stumbles a brother in the faith, that isn't suffering necessarily. But it falls in the category of long-suffering. Forbearing simply means to put up with. It means to put up with somebody. We live in a world today that has no problem telling you immediately what they think, that, that we all have an opinion, that, it's e that they're equally valid. Now, listen, it's true that we can all have an opinion. Not all opinions are equally valid, and not every opinion needs to be stated which I am working on learning because I form opinions very quickly. <laughs> I like to voice them very quickly. Okay, But we understand that. We live in a world where there is unprecedented opportunity to articulate your opinion all over the place, on all kinds of platforms, to all kinds of people, and the person that you may be articulating opinions about has no idea. Forbearance would reserve my opinion. Right? I'm going to put up with that person's whatever, their opinion, their, their position, how they're conducting themselves, whatever uh, personality traits that may conflict with mine, whatever it may be, I'm going to act in forbearance. I'm going to reserve my opinion. Why? Because in the long term, in the big scheme of things, it's not that important. Right? These are the kinds of things, if people within the church would be forbearing and long-suffering with another, one another, you wouldn't see churches splitting over minor things like the color of the carpet and whether they're putting coat hooks in the hallway or not. Because those things ultimately don't matter. So forbearance, we're going to extend impatience towards one another. Why? Because we're endeavoring, as it says in Ephesians 4.3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That here we are, by the Spirit, brought into the same family of God, given the same token and symbol of our adoption, and, and being in the same family. And as a result of that, we are going to put up with one another, we're going to exercise patience, long-suffering, and forbearance toward one another, so that we might have a unified representation of the of the family of God. You know how we would phrase it today? It's called being an adult. Acting like a grown-up. There's a lot of very childish adults today. Sadly, I myself have fallen into the category at times of being a childish adult. We probably all have. 
And when we talk about patience in Christian circles, and, and you know, it's cliche anymore, but you know, you don't pray for patience because God will give you the opportunity to exercise it. You have the opportunity now. Not only do you have the opportunity, you have the exhortation of the Apostle Paul that we would do so. That by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God would record for us in more than one place that we would be patient with one another. Forbearing one another in love, right? For the sake of unity. So towards each other, we have some responsibilities. We're going to exhort, we're going to warn one, those who are walking unruly. And I will tell you that on the other side of that, we're going to be receptive to correction. That we're going to be those who would comfort the feeble-minded, those who are uh, at the verge of giving up, that are faint-hearted, we would comfort them with the truth of God word, God's Word, His faithfulness, His goodness. That we would shore up the faith of those and not cause anybody to stumble who may be weaker in the faith, less established in the truth of God's Word. That we would be patient with one another toward all men. Now, I've put this in the context of in the church, but it says all men, which would include those outside of the church, in the same way that we would be patient with those in the church for the sake of preserving peace and unity, we should extend patience, long-suffering, and forbearance to those who are outside of the church so that we may not blemish the witness that we may have with them. And last, he tells us in regard to those who that we have, that we exercise uh, influence with, that we fellowship with, in verse 15, that we render, that we don't render evil for evil unto any man, but that we follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Now, I just want to define the evil that's being described here. I mean, ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, and, and it could be anything. But specifically, what, what is being discussed here and I'll explain why it could be anything here in just a moment. But in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 29, it says, Say not, I will do so to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. Right? That which he has done to me, I'm going to do that to him. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, all of that. That's what's being discussed here. That whatever they've done to me, whatever evil I've faced at their hands, I'm going to reciprocate in kind and I'll give the same kind of evil back. So it could be anything. You know, they slash your tires in the parking lot, I'm going to slash their tires and burn their house down. You know, whatever it may be, right? They talk bad about me at work to the boss, I'm going to talk bad about them to the work at work to the boss. You know, I mean, that's, we understand. For you and I, we have we should operate differently. And this is this is not unique to the book of Thessalonians or to this church. This is covered throughout the Old and the New Testament. This is there is a prescribed way that God's people would conduct themselves. And it really is an action of faith. Because as we read in the book of Romans, in fact, if we turn there to Romans chapter 12 for just a moment, uh, quoting from the Old Testament. Uh, so, uh, so again, this is not unique even to the New Testament. This is for all of God's people, for, for all of time. But in Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, 
In other words, I'm not going to repay an eye for an eye or the same evil that I received in them. I'm not going to give that back to them. <clears throat> but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. This is, this is God's jurisdiction. This is his realm. We were just told that we were supposed to be patient, long-suffering, and forbearing with all men. And we're going to give place. We're going to let God deal with them. It is his play, it is his, his jurisdiction. He will repay. We're going to give place. So I'm trusting that God is, in fact, just, like he says he is. That that, that which is needed for that person is going to happen. Verse 20, therefore, the therefore means therefore, based on that truth that God is just, that he is the, the person that will execute judgment, therefore, this is how we should behave. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Now, this isn't a, we're, we're not doing this for the purpose that they would be consumed. The coals of fire is simply a, a reference, as it were, to conviction. Right? That here I am, I've mistreated that person, I've been uh, in pursuit of them, I'm their enemy, whatever it may be, yet they treat me with kindness, they treat me with love, and what does that bring about? Well, Jesus would say it this way, that that's your light shining into the darkness. They're seeing your good works, and they're coming to a point of conviction where they would glorify your Father. That you are living differently as a result of your faith in Jesus Christ. That's what heaping coals of fire means. He says, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Towards others, it's not our responsibility, nor is it our place. We shouldn't be those who would be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's part of the witness that we hold in Matthew chapter 5, if you'll turn there with me for just a moment. Matthew chapter 5 beginning in verse 43. You have heard that it has been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. This is Jesus speaking. This is part of his Sermon on the Mount. He says, but I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And if I can just pause there for a moment, when Jesus talks about, then you will be the children of your Father, it isn't a statement of, at that point, when you're actually doing those things, that's when you enter the family of God. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about, you will be known and recognized as the children of your Father. That God, who, while we were yet sinners, while we were still enemies with him, would give everything to us, would treat us kindly, would give us what we needed, would extend to his grace so that we might come to faith, all of the above, and we begin to reflect that to the world around us, to those who are wronged us, to those who are extending evil our way. What do we give them? We overcome evil with good. We don't wait for them to, to turn. We begin to do what we should do to honor the Lord. And then we become, we are all of a sudden recognized as the children of God. That the profession of my faith and the life that I'm leading is consistent. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same. Verse 47, and if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not the publicans so. 
Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. We're told here by Jesus himself that our part of our witness is the kindness that we would show even in the face of those who would render evil our direction. So here, Paul tells this Thessalonian church five things that you need to do that we take as application for ourselves as believers in Christ. Things that we are beseeched, that we are nearly commanded, that Paul pleads would be characteristic of you and I in the church. That we would warn those who are walking unruly. That we would take the responsibility of fellowship that we have and we would engage in the conversation. Listen, I see you struggling in this. Have you thought about what the Word of God says about that? Can we, can we have a discussion about that? I don't know how you preach that topic, but you understand what I'm saying. The things that are out of line with Christ that we would address and we would bring those to the mind of Christ. Every thought captive. 2 Corinthians 10.5. That we would comfort the feeble-minded, those who are overwhelmed in the faith, that they would be comforted. That we would come to let the Word of God come to bear upon the situation that they find themselves in, that we would support, that we would uphold the weak in the faith, that it wouldn't cause them to stumble, that we would seek to establish them in the truth of God's Word, that we would be patient, long-suffering, and forbearing to all men, that we would not render evil for evil, but that we would let God have the jurisdiction that He has. So Paul gives this church some instruction about how they would interact with each other. And part of that being how they would interact with the world outside of their church, with outside of the fellowship that they hold. I'm more and more convinced, though, that it starts here in the church. If we won't do it here, we're not going to do it out there. He continues on. And he talks about the focus of our faith for a couple of verses. He says in verse 16, Rejoice evermore. Now, rejoice is simply an attitude of good cheer resulting from faith. I know it's a long definition, but it gives us a full definition. It's, it's an attitude of good cheer resulting from faith. In Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Actually, you know what? Turn to Luke. Instead, Matthew 13, 44, while you're turned to Luke. In Matthew 13, Jesus is giving his parable about the, the pearl of great price. Uh, and, and it's just a single verse. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like its treasure hid in a field, the which when a man has found, he hides and for joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Right. This is this is our faith. We've come to faith in Jesus Christ. And what did we find? Something of such great value that we would give everything up. Like Paul says in the book of Philippians, I gave everything up. I counted everything as dumb for the excellency of knowing Christ. And this is, that's what we're talking about here. This joy that we have is independent of the circumstance that we find ourselves in. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It's completely rooted in what God has finished in Jesus Christ the salvation and the redemption that we have received by faith in Him alone. Knowing that whatever comes our way doesn't matter. In Luke chapter 10, you'll remember that 
in Jesus's ministry, he sends his disciples out and he tells them, hey, don't take any money. Don't make any provision. But what I want you to do is go and start preaching to the to these towns around here and start telling them about me. And he tells them, listen, if they won't listen, shake the dust off your feet and move on. But if they will listen, then, hey, you've found an end. And take the opportunity to spread the gospel in those places. And in Luke chapter 10 and verses 17 through 20, these disciples that have been sent out are coming back and they're reporting what has happened. I want you to hear some of the things that have happened in verse, uh, verse beginning of verse 17 of Luke chapter 10. And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. So here they are, they're casting out demons. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning falling from heaven. So Jesus' response I beheld light, Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I gave unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Right, so Jesus' response, I mean, he's celebrating with them. He's like, listen, I gave, I, this is power that I've extended to you for the sake of furthering the gospel, which is very consistent with the Great Commission and all of those things. Okay? But verse 20 is the substantive verse. Even though we have all of these other things to rejoice in, that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we have all of the, the, just like these disciples, we have greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And the authority with which we speak in Jesus' name and the ability that we would even have to cast out demons and do those things is no different than them, and it's something to be rejoiced in, and it's, it's miraculous in that God would respond and move on those behalfs. However, Jesus says that he puts them in mind, and this is where we need to be, and this is what we're talking about in, in regard to rejoicing. Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not, that the spirits are subject unto you. Jesus said, listen, that's great, but that's not something necessarily to rejoice in. What you should rejoice in, he says, because your names are written in heaven. In other words, Jesus says the foundation of your joy, what you should rejoice in, is the salvation and the redemption that you found in me and in me alone. It's independent. You remember in the movie Facing the Giants, that football movie that came out a long time ago, and they finally decide, hey, we're just going to, we're just going to play football for the Lord no matter what we do. And what do they say? If we win, we praise him. If we lose, we praise him. And that's the idea. That's, that's rejoicing. It doesn't matter if it seems like we are standing in victory, that we are overcoming everything, all that. Or if it's on the other side and, boy, we really lost, we were defeated, we rejoice. Why? Because it's rooted not in our ability to do those things, not because we could cast out demons or those, or, or, or because I would have enough self-discipline to overcome a particular area in my life, whatever it may be. No, I rejoice, and the foundation of our joy is that Christ has finished it, that we are born again, that he has written our names in the book of life, and therefore we are secure in his hands. We rejoice evermore, just as Paul writes here. Never ceasing, always praising God. Now, to this I want to add, and I put here, not all hard, all good. And I, and I say that, this is something that I've been thinking a lot about as we, I don't know why I've been thinking a lot about it. Something Probably something that God is dealing with me about. But here it is. 
right? We talk about this and we talk, and we talk about things and we empathize with people saying that's hard. And, and it's probably true. What they're experiencing and what they're going through is a difficult circumstance, right? And I'm not trying to, to downplay any of that. Our empathy and those kinds of things should be along the lines where we could, uh, and our compassion would be along the lines that we would be able to bear that burden with them. That we can sure that they might be faint-hearted and we have to encourage them. But a reaffirming that it's simply that it's hard is missing the fact that, you know what, nothing has changed in your circumstance. That we still have this place that we can rejoice from because it's not based on the circumstance that you're in. It's not based on this hardship or anything like that. Remember that even though this is hard, Jesus Christ died for you. You are still justified. You are still born again. You are secure in his hands. And while those hard circumstances may come as they're in effect and a result of sin in, our, in, in the world around us, because that's what it is. God's not the author of sin or, or badness. Everything that he declared at his creation was very good, and then sin corrupted it. But what we do understand is that he is a God of redemption, and that he's made great strides and taken great steps, even the giving of his son, that he would redeem us from the effects of sin. This is part of the hope that we have and what Paul has exhorted the Thessalonians twice now to comfort each other with. At Christ's return, those things are done away with. But in Romans chapter 8, if you'll turn there with me for a moment, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And this is familiar verses, but what we have to understand is that this is familiar verses, and, and sometimes I think they're taken out of context. Because I think that in so many respects, they're probably only applicable in the way that we interpret them, to believers. Okay, look with me in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. And the reason I say that they're really only applicable to believers because there, other people are simply reaping what they sow. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. We read that in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. But for you and I as believers, uh, while that is also true, God's not mocked even by believers, by his children, God is in the business of redemption. And because he's in the business of redemption, because he has a predetermined plan for you and I, that those that he saves, that are, that are adopted into his family by faith in Jesus Christ, will be conformed to the image of his Son. And he goes on in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. He says, For whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, the sovereign plan of God from before time began is that those who are born again, those who are adopted into God's family, justified, that are washed by the blood of Christ, now forgiven, are going to be sanctified, changed to the image of Christ. And that though we may be experiencing the hardship and the things ref, uh, affected by sin in those hard things, we can rejoice in the fact that we are secure in his hands and that he is redeeming even that hard circumstance to bring about our best. That he is in fact working that for our good and to his glory. Because he's a God of redemption. 
because he loves us enough to take that bad thing and redeem it for us. It reminds me of David, and I was reminded of this uh, as Jessica and I were talking about what we were, she was telling me what she was reading. And you remember David at the end of his, at the end of his reign as king, he uh, wants to number the people. And as he does so, he's, <laughs> the prophet shows up and tells him, listen, you, you've exercised pride here. You, you, there's going to be a problem. There's a consequence for your sin. And he says, so you, you get to choose one of three things. You can fall into the hands of your enemies for a set period of time. You can, um, I can't remember the one, the next one. I apologize. Do you remember what it was? No. I can't remember. I apologize. But the third option, which is the option that David chose, is that there would be pestilence. There would be a plague amongst all of the nation of Israel. And that's what David chose. And the reason he chose, he says, is because I know that God can be merciful. My enemies won't be merciful. Those who seek my life, who want, they're not going to be merciful to me, but God will be merciful. That he will redeem even my sinfulness for his glory. Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, lovely, good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on those things. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Now here's what we're doing in, in regard to rejoicing as we think on these things, right? It's an ascribing to God a gratefulness for all that he's done. That that which is, in fact, good was created by God. Those things that are, that are in fact, honest, that are just, that are pure, that they are those things that would emanate from him, that he had his creation declared good. And not only that, but even this hard thing, I would view with the right attitude and heart that it is, though it is an effect of sin, I can be grateful and I can rejoice in who my God is and trust that he's redeeming this. And we would rejoice. We should have no shortage of things to rejoice for. And then along those lines, in the second verse, when we talk about the focus of our faith, it's not on the externals, it isn't on the things that we may encounter, the circumstances, it's not on myself. It is on what God has done, what He has revealed of Himself, who He is. He is the object of our faith. That's where the focus is. And along those lines, as we rejoice for all that God has done already, we look forward to the opportunity to uh, as he says here in verse 17 pray without ceasing which is an exercise of faith it assumes trust in god and his sovereignty i remember being asked at some point and i think i've shared this before why do we pray if god is all knowing why do we need to pray and and it's a good question, and I think the shortest answer is, well, well, yeah, God is all-knowing. He knows what we have need of. And in fact, the Bible tells us that. 
This is an act of faith. When I pray uh, in, in regard to these things, it's an act of my faith. I am praying always. I'm trusting in God's sovereignty, knowing that His will is going to be executed. I'm going to pray for this, trusting that God's will will be done, whatever it may be, whether it's an answer in the affirmative or the negative, or not right now, I can trust in it. Again, in Philippians chapter 4, those verses just preceding what we read, verses 6 and 7, he says, Be careful or be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So here we are being told, co commanded, as it were, to pray. Right? Don't be anxious for things, but pray. See God about it. He already knows what you need. We, we've established that already. He is all-knowing, and there's nothing surprising Him. But we're going to let our request, we're going to make our supplication with thanksgiving and let our request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. In other words, I'm exercising faith in that, in that God is going to answer that prayer as he said he would, but he's going to answer it in the absolute best regard for me, whether it's what I want or whether it's not what I want, I can give thanks for that. You know, going back to that pastor that I told you about that prayed for his daughter to be healed. As hard as that was, I understand completely that here it was an answer of prayer, that God, in fact, answered that prayer in accordance with his will, sovereignly. And as hard as that may be, there is nothing but thanksgiving on the other side. And when you have the conversation with that man about everything that God did in and through that circumstance, there is nothing but gratitude, as hard as it was, to have lost his daughter. He is thankful that God answered that prayer in accordance to his will. He trusts that it is absolutely the best thing that could have happened. He has a peace that emanates from God that makes no sense to me because I can't fathom losing one of my children. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, seeing that you have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So if we look at this in reverse, right? We have the idea that here is our opportunity that we have access through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and adoption into the family of God into God's very presence. Now, this isn't a, a walking into a building, and this isn't walking into a specific uh, structure of any kind. This is an attitude of prayer. We can come boldly into his presence, right, to the throne of his grace, and we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And it's of great comfort to us that Jesus Christ, who was our Savior and is now our High Priest, has gone through the same trials, the same temptations, the same griefs, the same heartaches, the same faint-heartedness, all of those things, was in all points tempted as we were tempted, yet was without sin. 
he understands. The mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, stood here on this earth and experienced the same heartaches and the effects of sin that we experienced and now ever lives to make intercession for you and me. To be that mediator, to provide that access where we can come into God's very presence. The focus of our faith in regard to prayer is that we trust that God is in fact for us. And that whatever answer we may receive, it is in fact the best answer that we could have received. Now there's something to be said here just briefly in regard to perseverance in prayer. Uh, if you're familiar with George Mueller, he was uh, ran an orphanage in Bristol, England, and, and he was famous in his biographies writing about um, only praying one time. He knew that God had heard. He prayed one time, and now I'm just going to trust. Now it's just an operation of faith. And there's nothing wrong with that. And in many respects, what he did, because he had to pray for the same things over and over, there was prayers for provision, and God would answer those prayers inevitably in accordance with his will every single time, the next day, there's also a need for provision, and so he would pray again. It wasn't that he gave up and he only prayed for provision one time, but he prayed for the day's needs that day one time. So there's still a perseverance in prayer. In Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, Jesus gives this parable, and, and I'm just going to sum it up for you, but uh, in the first verse, he tells us what the parable is about. And he spake a parable to them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Others that we persevere and pray. We don't give up. And he goes on and he talks about the, the parable is this. There's a widow in this city and she comes to this judge and this judge doesn't fear God. That says that, nor does he regard any man. But this widow comes and she, she says, avenge me of mine adversary. And the judge wouldn't listen. He wouldn't do it. Yet this woman would come all the time and just plead with him to avenge avenge her, to avenge her, to, to execute justice on her behalf over and over and over and over. And finally, as a result, he was wearied, it says. In verse 5, excuse me, he says in verse 4, and he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, though I fear not God, nor regard man. I'm not doing this for God, I'm not doing this for man. But basically he says, yeah, because this widow troubles me. I'm tired of hearing from her. She's the squeaky wheel that's going to get the grease now. I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Not a patient man. Not long-suffering. Not willing to forbear this lady. But listen, I'm going to finally do something about it because she's bothersome. And shall not the Lord avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth? Right, that we would continue, that we would persevere, and in regard to prayer, that we would, as it says, pray without ceasing, that we wouldn't grow weary of prayer. That our faith wouldn't wax cold in our trust of God to, re to answer those prayers in, our, in accordance with His will. So the focus of our faith, not only is He talking about how we would deal with each other outwardly within the church, and even to those outside of the church, Paul here addresses the focus of our faith in regards to rejoicing and the foundation of our joy in Jesus Christ and what he's finished. Independent of the circumstances, 
knowing that everything is being redeemed on our behalf. So therefore we have plenty to rejoice for. And because we encounter life when we live in a sin-affected world, there is plenty to pray for. We are to pray without ceasing. It is a daily and a regular encounter with God, as it were, knowing that he is faithful to answer those prayers. And then as he says in verse 18, and we'll kind of conclude here this morning, he says, pray without ceasing. Excuse me, in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Give thanks for everything. Why? Well, because we know who God is. We know that he's for us. We know that whatever he is allowed, whatever is happening in our life is clearly being redeemed for our best and for his glory. That no matter what may be coming our way, as hard as it may be, that, that God is in fact faithful, that we are not fallen from grace, we haven't lost anything, that we are in the middle of receiving from him perhaps correction because he loves us or because it's simply sin in the world, that, but he's going to redeem it. I mean, there's nothing that we shouldn't be giving thanks for. In everything, give thanks. In Job chapter 1, if you'll turn there with me, Job chapter 1. Remember that in the story of Job, it, it begins, and it's talking about this man named Job in the land of Uz, Uz who is a perfect and an upright man. And as the angels are proceeding before God there in heaven, Satan comes up and says, listen, God says to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? This guy who is righteous, who is, who, who is maybe not righteous, but is perfect and upright, as it says. He fears God and he hates evil. God tells Satan, have you seen my guy Job? And Satan says, well, he, he's only like that. He only loves you because... You've blessed him. And God says, well, you can, you can afflict him. And you shake your head and you're like, oh, I don't understand. I don't have to understand necessarily. Right? This is God's man. This is God. This, this is what God knows that we may not fully understand about Job is that no matter what happens, Job is not going to leave him. And so the first thing that we find happening here in this first chapter is Job's kids are killed. They're all getting together. Job's even to the, to the point that he, he knows his kids are probably making mistakes, that they're somehow sinning, and so he's offering sacrifices for them. But they all get together. They're having a party. The house falls down on them, and they all die. I mean, that's, the, that's really the first thing that happens. And Job says in verse 21, Naked I came into my mother's womb, and naked I shall... Return there that the Lord gave and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. After the house falls down, you know, he receives word. Everything, everything that he owns, he's lost. He's lost his, his children. He's lost his wealth. He's lost everything. Ultimately, um, you, you know, Job's wife tells him, hey, just curse God and die. I, I think Job's wife gets somewhat of a bad rap. Explain that later. Whether or not she's around or not, I don't know. Then his health is lost all throughout, right? Job loses everything. He has nothing to rejoice in other than, I know my Redeemer lives. I know that I am redeemed. 
and that I will stand before him in the flesh. Even if worms eat my body, he says. Job never loses faith. The circumstances surrounding him, as hard as they are, he rejoices in. He gives thanks for. He understands that because he is called according to the purpose of God, that everything is being worked for his good. It is bringing about his sanctification, his conformity to the image of Christ. And so therefore, no matter what it is, as he says here, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, he gives thanks to God for all that's happening. I'd love to stand here and tell you that I would give thanks for the similar circumstances in my life, but I don't know if I would. I would hope that I would, and I would, I would hope that if I didn't, that you guys would all come alongside and be with this guy who was absolutely at that point probably faint-hearted and on the verge of giving up. But he gives thanks in everything. And all the more us who have the example and the truth of God's word time after time after time of God's faithfulness, of his unwillingness to give over, that even in the midst of this hardship and all the circumstances that surround the world, the ups and downs in the nation of Israel, they're falling into sin and therefore being judged, all of those things, everything in that, in some respect being representative of our Christian life. The ups and the downs, the in and out of sin, the correction of God's hand, the ever-consistent truth that Jesus Christ died for us, that there is something to rejoice for in everything. We understand that in everything, no matter what it is, we give thanks. In Colossians 3.17, as we close this morning, Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. <clears throat> he says, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. We have this understanding that as we live in a world that is affected by sin, that no matter what comes our way, knowing that, that either God is redeeming it or that he is somehow instrumental in it, because those are really the only two things that would happen, that it is for our best. And so whatever we go through, whatever we're doing, hard stuff, good stuff, easy stuff, things that we would easily rejoice and give thanks for, Lord, thank you for the provision of whatever it may be. Thank you for all of the above. Thanks for the safety and travel. And we rejoice at all of those things, no matter what it may be. And then the hard stuff. Lord, we see wars and rumors of wars all around the world. We see all of this stuff. Everything looks like it's going south. Lord, we give thanks. And we rejoice. Whatever comes our way, whatever we're doing, we do it as unto the Lord. And so as we look at the focus of our faith in regard to rejoicing and giving thanks and praying without ceasing, it's an act of faith. What is the focus of it? And we have this opportunity to be that light into the darkness that the world sees around us. And even though everything is going sideways and we have all this to be fearful or anxious about, 
what is this person over here that names the name of Christ doing? Well, they're giving thanks and they're rejoicing and they're simply praying to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding comforts them. Why? Because they're trusting him. They're not trusting in chariots and, and political deliverances and all of those things. They're trusting in the very living God and rejoicing and giving thanks for the salvation that they've freely received and that they obviously have a certainty of. And in the redemption of God for our benefit to mold us into the image of Christ and for his glory. What is the focus of our faith? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word this morning. We rejoice that, uh, Lord, as you have given your son, that there is so much for us to hold on to. And that as a result of all of those things, Lord, we can safely trust and we can rejoice despite the circumstances we find ourselves in. And Lord, I praise you for the fellowship of the body of Christ. That, Lord, you have uniquely put together this thing that didn't exist before but now does, the people of God, a holy and a peculiar people that encourages, that warns, Lord, that bears up, that, that, it, that is patient and is an outward expression of all that you have done in us to the world around us. I pray, Lord, that you would knit us together, that we would be those uh, that clearly reflect, both personally and as a church, who you are and what you've done. God, we thank you and we rejoice now as we have opportunity to worship, sing praise for who you are and all that you've done. Lord, we pray that you would receive it as the offering of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.